Welcome to Same Surgeon, Different Life, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. This series focuses on demystifying cardiothoracic surgery and presenting the remarkable backstories of surgeons from a variety of backgrounds and in various career stages that have led them to become the face of CT surgery. I'm Dr. David Tom Cook, and in each episode, Dr. Tom Varghese and I will get to know more about our colleagues, the obstacles, the success stories, trade-offs, and pivotal moments that have shaped their careers as well as their personal missions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. And what an amazing guest to start our journey of exploration into the lives of those who have shined a path of excellence. Today, we interview Dr. Robert Higgins. Dr. Higgins is the William Stewart Halstead Professor of Surgery and Director of the Department of Surgery at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Surgeon-in-Chief at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. A renowned heart-lung transplant surgeon, he is the past president of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons and was recently appointed the Senior Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. One of the quotes that has inspired and motivated Dr. Higgins came from Winston Churchill. We make a living by what we do, but we make a life by what we give. Dr. Higgins is the embodiment of this quote, living the creed of lifting as we rise. The remarkable thing about Bob is his selfless servant leadership. He has been an incredible teacher, mentor, coach, and sponsor to so many of us across the nation, not just by his words of wisdom, but also by the amazing example he sets for us. He has a remarkable way of including and encouraging people to speak their mind, gaining consensus, and then rallying everyone as a team to accomplish the goals at hand. It is that standard that we aspire to each and every day as his mentees. I am confident that you will enjoy today's episode of Same Surgeon, Different Light. Dr. Higgins, thank you for the opportunity to connect today. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for the invitation, and I appreciate the uh, gracious introduction. Uh, we all stand on uh, shoulders of others who have helped us during our career, and I feel like it's a privilege to share whatever lessons I've learned with you and others in the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. So I'm really an honor. Uh, it's a privilege and uh, look forward to uh, sharing some time with you today. Perfect. Dr. Higgins, before we go back into your background, I just wanted to take a moment and describe your new role that you just took over at, at Hopkins. Uh, I mean, you're the chair of surgery there and the surgeon in chief, but you just took on a new role for Johns Hopkins University. Could you tell our listeners about uh, the, the responsibilities you have in that new role? Well, thanks, Tom. Yeah, I've been fortunate over the last 30 years to have lots of informal uh, mentorship roles and mostly as a role model, try to let people know that uh, if you're a person of color, that uh, you can succeed in specialties like cardiothoracic surgery, which don't have a lot of underrepresented in medicine. Uh, and over the past uh, eight months, we've been talking about formalizing some of those informal roles here at Johns Hopkins, which has a storied history of over 130 years of uh, distinction, innovation, and uh, extraordinary care in the field of cardiothoracic surgery, as well as in surgery. And uh, it became apparent that in order to really have a maximum impact, um, the dean thought that uh, I should be appointed um, formally in the dean's office for the work that we were doing with diversity and inclusion. And so uh, I was appointed 
uh, uh, a couple months ago as the Senior Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion. And I include in that role faculty development, which is so vitally important to the process. And so I've been in that role now for um, several months and uh, we're uh, uh, doing a lot of extraordinary programming related to uh, diversity and inclusion and faculty development as a primary role. Uh, we have over 125 surgeons in our department and close to 2000 employees who support the surgical enterprises at the five hospitals that we interact with. And one of those primary roles is to identify the best and the brightest people to help serve the patients that we uh, take care of, both here in Baltimore and in the mid-Atlantic states and even beyond internationally. And so uh, this mission, uh, this role uh, is complementary to my role as the Surgeon in Chief and uh, it's been exciting. Uh, it really is a full-time job uh, in addition to my surgical roles. No, that, that, that's, that's amazing, uh, Bob, and I really appreciate you, you taking the time to explain that role because that's a very unique role that isn't present in a lot of academic institutions across the country. And so we appreciate you taking the time to deep dive into that. Um, I want to take you back. And I know that one of your favorite quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is um, carve a tunnel of hope through the dark mountain of disappointment. Um, you are indeed one of the most positive individuals that I've ever met in my life, but your life story has had a lot of hardships. Can you kind of take us back to your experiences, you know, growing up, uh, you know, you were faced with, uh, you know, uh, a tragedy very early in your life. Could you kind of explain to our listeners what you went well, through? Briefly, I, briefly, I would say that they're mostly great opportunities to, uh, to achieve and to excel. Uh, others would define them as uh, uh, disappointments. Yet, you know, my mom and dad met when my dad was a medical student at Meharry, which is one of the one of the only places in the United States in the 50s where people of color could get a medical education. He originally was uh, from Charleston, South Carolina. And after they met and married, uh, he uh, joined the uh, Navy as a reservist and spent two years in uh, Camp Pendleton in California. Uh, I was born in uh, California in San Diego. And then after he completed his service for the reserves, he moved back to Charleston, South Carolina and established a general medical practice uh, where he did a lot of things uh, for the community uh, as one of the few physicians of color uh, in the segregated South. Uh, unfortunately, when I was five, my brothers were three and one, he was killed in a car accident in 1964. And my mom was left uh, with the three of us um, without any life insurance and uh, moved back to upstate New York where her family was from and raised uh, three kind of crazy uh, hell raising boys. Uh, in combination with my grandparents, uh, we were afforded fantastic opportunities. So we we're, we were fortunate to go to uh, uh, outstanding undergraduate uh, and uh, preparatory schools that led to uh, entry to places like Dartmouth and uh, great opportunities for us. And uh, at the time, we were considering, you know, what were the options for us? And our parents really created a fantastic uh, educational platform for us and assumed that we had to excel at everything we did. And uh, I was a pre-medical student and uh, went on to, uh, uh, fortunate to be admitted to Yale for my um, medical school training, which was a wonderful place. And I, at the time, thought I wanted to be a transplant surgeon. And so, 
the best and busiest uh, transplant center in the world was the University of Pittsburgh. And so I was fortunate to uh, match there and um, started on my career as a general surgeon, thinking that liver transplantation might be the future. But uh, I was fortunate to meet this fantastic uh, ICU nurse in the cardiac uh, arena. And she convinced me that cardiac uh, transplantation was a special uh, calling. And so I uh, switched my interest to cardiothoracic surgery. And then uh, we got married, uh, Molly and I uh, moved to New Haven where we did our cardiac training. And uh, then I went on to do a transplant fellowship at Papworth in Cambridge, England. And along the way, uh, we've had three wonderful kids um, who are doing fantastic things in their own right uh, based upon some of the lessons we learned during that journey. So I, I, that, I'm, I'm, I'm smiling over here because uh, for, for our listeners, Molly's also another one of my favorite human beings in the world. So we are really deeply grateful to Molly for directing you in the right direction because, <laughs> uh, no offense, I don't think you would have been quite as successful in abdominal transplant as you were here in CT. So that, we're, yeah. we're all grateful to her. Yeah, <laughs> she's responsible for the majority of my success. And there's no question about that. <laughs> um, I wanted to take, uh, it, before we leave your childhood, uh, one of your mom's favorite sayings was, keep on keeping on. Uh, what did she mean by that? Well, she um, saw the losses that she sustained in her life as opportunities to persevere. And uh, I always was marveled at how she had the grit and the perseverance. She was a tough lady. And she raised three boys along with my grandparents uh, to kind of maintain our vision uh, for academic uh, excellence and uh, commitment to not only ourselves, but to our communities to do uh, the right thing by those communities. And so I think that that was a fantastic lesson uh, in public service. You know, they also had challenges uh, when we, in the mid sixties, were moving out of uh, a, a condo into a, a new home in a, in a segregated neighborhood, uh, my grandfather purchased a home. And uh, within 24 hours, uh, there was a mysterious fire that burned the house to the ground. And my grandfather wasn't mad. He wasn't uh, angry, but he just said, we're going to persevere and we'll work through this. And uh, we bought another home uh, within a short period of time, uh, several blocks away. And they stayed in that home um, until uh, they passed uh, many years later. So I think they showed perseverance and grit in the face of um, structural and overt racism, and yet um, taught us to uh, persevere in that regard. So I, I feel like those are extraordinary lessons, current times notwithstanding, that we have to persevere and show grit uh, in our current environment. Uh, that, that's, that's incredible. And I, I know that you've also, um, you know, I've had the privilege of listening to you over the years. You've also reflected that it's interesting, uh, the three environments that you were in, um, in terms of schooling. I mean, you went to a military academy and then you were, you were playing, correct me if I'm wrong, you played fullback for the Dartmouth football team. Uh, uh, and then after that, then you went into the world of surgery. Um, and it, it strikes me that these three environments, there's a lot of commonalities. There's the, you know, discipline, um, the hard work. I mean, these are not easy environments to thrive in unless you do that hard work. But that opportunity or the, the realization that 
you have to keep focus and keep moving forward. Is that a great way of summing up the lessons that you learned from these environments? Well, it's, it's very nice of you to interpret that way. I, I don't know that we thought about it uh, when we were going through those uh, stages of our careers, but uh, in retrospect, I think uh, it does uh, serve as a, a reminder about what we need to do in terms of our careers. Um, the military school uh, was an extraordinary opportunity as, a, as the first person to be in the, the major of the cadet battalion. Um, I didn't know anything other than to just do the best I could. And then, um, you know, playing football, we had great uh, uh, aspirations to, you know, play at the college level. And uh, of course, I had knee injuries that uh, really limited my ability to contribute. But otherwise, I was a team member of the team and and participated in all four years and got a letter, so I was proud of that. And then, of course, uh, serving as a, a physician in the medical corps uh, was something I thought was important uh, in, this, in the spirit of what my dad did. Uh, and wrote, you know, spent 13 years uh, serving the reserves. And I, it turns out I led the transplant program at the Richmond VA, uh, serving veterans, uh, doing uh, heart and lung transplantation. So, I thought the, the, the commitment to service across those three areas, I think was important. And I think it's, it resonates with me now as we have to serve our communities and those who are less fortunate than us uh, by giving the gifts that we have from a professional standpoint. So uh, thank you for uh, pointing that out, but I think it's just what we've always done. Yeah, no, uh, I also wanted to ask you about, um, now that you've gone through this, um, your reflections of oftentimes being uh, you are the first, whatever it is, you know, as you correctly pointed out, you know, uh, you oftentimes were the first African-American in the room in a position of leadership throughout the years. How did you uh, face that? Because we know that the bar is incredibly high being the first in those positions that, you know, you can't afford to have a setback or you're, you're not given the grace of stumbling and coming. How, how did you face those situations of being the first in the room? Well, it's, uh, as my mom would always say, you know, pressure makes diamonds. And um, you have to be able to live with the constant uh, uh, microscope that we live under. Um, the expectations are extraordinary. And particularly for people of color in the world of surgery and in cardiothoracic surgery, those expectations were no less. So um, the only thing we could do is put your head down and show up every day, be conscientious, and uh, work hard. And if you worked hard and had good results in terms of patient care and had a commitment to uh, teamwork and uh, building teams around you, uh, it made a difference. And so uh, I, I was fortunate to be given those leadership opportunities going forward. And I'm hopeful that I'll continue to maintain a leadership profile. I think you have to decide that you're going to give back to the group that you are working with and try to help them continue to grow and develop. Uh, and so I think that's part of the, the, the mantra that I would um, expect from any emerging leader in our current environment, whether it be healthcare or hospital administration or education, that you have to be able to um, espouse the idea that leadership requires followers and that we have a commitment to those people who are coming behind us to give them the, the best of our knowledge and our ability to succeed and go forward. But, but Bob, you know that's not popular these days, right? I mean, that doesn't sell books. That doesn't sell 
you know, it's not a catchy moment on interviews to say that we need to help people. Um, you know, we're in this environment where it's kind of like me centric, right? That there are a lot of so-called leaders out there who look at these leadership titles as, um, you know, career recognition awards that oftentimes they don't give back, but you're a throwback. I mean, you don't follow that creed. How did you differentiate yourself from that? Because I know that you had some great role models, but you also saw other people who didn't believe in that philosophy of giving back. Well, I don't know. I leave it to other people to judge uh, our success in the journey. Uh, I do think that it's been uh, rewarding to see so many people like you and uh, David Cook and Leah Backus and Errol Bush and uh, Fabian Johnson who have gone on to distinguish themselves as leaders in their own right. And it's not because I did it. I, I gave them some advice along the way, but also helped to clear a path for them. So the role as, as a role model uh, and maybe as a mentor uh, and as a colleague uh, pays dividends. And, uh, and so if they listen and learn those lessons well, then they distinguish themselves and go on to be uh, extraordinary. So it's a, it's a, it pays dividends to share your gifts with other people. And I'm proud that you have done so well and that Leah and David Cook and Errol Bush and uh, so many others have uh, excelled in their field. And uh, I, I may have contributed a small fraction of maybe some advice uh, to success. For our listeners, uh, Dr. Higgins is being awfully humble right now. Though he gave <laughs> created a lot of opportunities for many of us. Uh, and for that, we're incredibly indebted. But uh, um, I wanted to pivot more into um, the current problems that we're facing in the medical world, as well as the world of CT surgery. So um, in uh, one of the stats that came out, um, and this, is, this may be dated, uh, this came out a few years ago, they said that African Americans make up 13% of the nation's population, but consist of only 4% of the country's physicians. Um, and then nearly the four decades between 1978 and 2014, the annual number of black male applicants to medical school dropped. Um, can you uh, shed some light onto why we're having this pipeline issue in the sense that there are so many outstanding human beings and potential leaders out there. Why aren't we having better success of attracting them to the world of, uh, of medicine? Well, I think it's complicated, but as much as anything else, it's about those opportunities for people who have a, a, an interest uh, in the sciences, the STEM areas, to get opportunities um, early on in their career, as I did, uh, from the uh, undergraduate level, uh, even from high school and long before that, in uh, those formative years where you're learning about study habits and interest in those fields. Um, having role models, makes a big difference. If, if you don't have role models, then sometimes it, it's less likely that you're gonna pursue a career in medicine or engineering or science. So I think the challenge of course is then, once role modeling is effective, having the resources and to get an undergraduate education, to finish even high school uh, in some of these communities is a really task. 
And so the resources are not available for those young people to follow um, the science careers, and that becomes a real limitation. From the standpoint of fostering um, excellence in, in those areas, I think it's really important that uh, undergraduate environments then create a pipeline into the sciences uh, for medical school. Uh, and I think that's really where we've fallen behind. Um, and so the third problem, of course, is the economics. You know, um, these young people who are finishing medical education have a $150,000, $200,000 debt, and many other lines of uh, career distinction don't require that kind of debt. And uh, I would imagine that uh, young people from the, uh, from the underrepresented minority environments are not in a position to take on that kind of debt. And so they decide to do other things. So a combination of the debt uh, uh, involved in getting a medical education makes it a real obstacle to going forward where business may be a more attractive option. Um, so I think that's part of the challenge. From the standpoint of uh, how we move forward, I'm hopeful that we can create um, and develop environments that foster acceptance and professionalism uh, for those who have been underrepresented in medicine, but not only to be admitted to the field, but also to be welcomed to institutions like Hopkins or uh, these other prestigious places, and they can feel like it's an academic home. Classically, when you go to those places, there aren't many people who look like you. Uh, what we would benefit from is a nucleus of folks, a critical mass of people who um, have common experiences to yours and that their academic uh, careers could be shaped by those common experiences and the collegiality that's developed. But I think in addition to developing a network of uh, great uh, academic environments, uh, I think we have to make the acknowledgement that um, excellence of performance really will trans transcend the barriers that many people see are obstacles. And it's really about performance and being an outstanding physician uh, and an outstanding surgeon, and hopefully as an outstanding cardiothoracic surgeon, that opens the door for us to continue to excel and, um, and be role models for others. Oh, uh, phenomenal points. And uh, you had recently written um, uh, diversity focuses on representation, kind of what you just said in those statements. Inclusion focuses on involvement. Uh, but then you also tried to differentiate between equity and equality. Uh, could you kind of expand on that in terms of, is there a difference between the two, between equity and equality? Well, well equity is giving everyone um, what they need to be successful. Equality is... Um, more so treating people the same. Uh, it promotes fairness, um, but it can only work if everyone starts out from the same place and needs the same kind of help. And that speaks to the challenges in the pipeline, right? They may have opportunity, but they may not have the resources available to excel in a career in medicine or science. And so these are some of the distinctions that we, these are tools and ways to think about this current crisis uh, in the pipeline. Uh, it's gonna require a huge investment of time and energy, uh, for role models like you and I, black and brown people, reaching back and pulling those young people forward. And then trying to develop the resources to continue the educational process so that they can get to a place where they can be 
distinguished in these academic environments and go on and excel in their careers. Uh, the, the problems that you've outlined, um, are they specific to cardiothoracic surgery um, or is it, these are general problems and it's irrespective of the specialty, we're gonna face the same things? These are problems throughout medicine. Uh, you pick a specialty, cardiology, pediatrics, uh, surgery, general surgery, colorectal surgery, you name it. Every one of our specialties in medicine are, are troubled by these same principles, I think. And they'll, the solutions are embedded in the things we talked about, creating opportunities and resources to help those folks succeed. And then um, giving them the kind of uh, uh, support they need to excel. It's also, if you think about a career in cardiothoracic surgery, it's a nine-year journey at significant sacrifice, personally and professionally, that we all went through. You think about general surgery training, then cardiac training, and then uh, you graduate with a significant debt, try to build a family, and have a quality of life that allows you to enjoy the fruits of your labor. It's a tough journey. And many young people look at that and say, boy, I'm 21, I'm not gonna wait till I'm in my early 30s to uh, reap the fruits of my labor. But I think uh, we're fortunate to have dedicated young people who, with this kind of mentorship, see that it's a great career. And so I would be optimistic for folks to think, um, we have an incredible opportunity. We take care of the top two reasons why people in the Western world die, atherosclerotic heart disease and lung cancer. And if you can have an impact in those fields, you can save lives. And so my conclusion would be that a diversity of thought and training and background can save lives for those people who are disproportionately affected. People of color tend not to have the same outcomes or access to care in cardiovascular disease and in cancer. And so if we train more people of color and those who are underrepresented, we actually will enhance the workforce and then apply those skills to people who are in desperate need. And so we'll close the gap on those outcomes and disparities um, among those people of color. So it's gonna pay dividends. So I'll repeat that diversity in our training and in our professional manpower will save lives. And I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, this message will resonate with others. Uh, that, that's, that's incredible. Um, I wanted to now pivot more towards what we're facing today. Um, I, I've often heard you say that sometimes these problems, it's, it's a feeling of deja vu, right? I mean, you see, we see protests, we see social unrest. None of this is new. But are there aspects of today's outrage that are different from the years before? Well, as I stated, you know, my family was subjected to, you know, racism in the 60s. These are not new problems. And structural racism has existed hundreds of years in our communities uh, across North America. I think what's different, of course, is that um, it's part of our day-to-day -day news cycle. And so being black in America is chronicled through social media, where um, the loss of life, uh, the, the police violence, 
uh, the other uh, examples of where structural racism and implicit bias and overt bias are part of our day-to-day exposures. And that's unfortunate. We don't want to harp on it. But it, it then reminds us on a daily basis. And if you're a person of color, you're wondering, why aren't we doing something to fix these problems? Why don't we just look beyond it and say, oh, well, that's tough. Um, we have to do something to fix these problems. And I think that the uh, social media uh, is raising the profile of these problems. It's making us aware of them. Uh, I, we would be hopeful that our um, political officials would be responding more effectively. Uh, that's another issue that we can discuss, but I would prefer not to discuss the politics, but rather fixing the problems. And uh, it requires awareness and uh, I think strategic intent to fix it. Um, to expand a little bit about the strategic of, uh, intent. Um, is it uh, strategies at the personal level? Is it community? Is it organizations? Um, is it organizations as big as like the Society of Thoracic Surgeons of America? Could you just expand a little bit about what strategies are needed going forward? Well, we have we all have a, pl- a part to play in this at the individual level, at the uh, systematic level, uh, even in my department, our institution, uh, through policies, through laws, that level the playing field. Um, each of us has a part. I think from my perspective, um, my part is to help our school, which is influential, it's a prestigious academic environment, do not only in training people about their implicit bias, making them aware of it and acknowledging it, and trying to solve it and stop it, but also then to recruit the best and the brightest young people into our environment, giving them the training and the background and the skills they need to succeed and teaching them how to navigate this maze. Uh, And once we get them into our environment, retaining them and making sure that they feel like this is their academic home. Many times uh, bright and talented young people come into an environment and they feel all all alone. And if I was not resolute in my commitment to, to succeed, I might feel alone as the only person of color as a director at Johns Hopkins in 130 years. I see that as a fantastic opportunity because I'm going to open the door for someone else who then will succeed and then we will join hands and we will make this a great place. We'll diversify it. We'll offer that we belong and uh, hopefully open the door for a third person and then a fourth person. And eventually you've got a critical mass and then we draw strength from those folks and uh, make this a successful a multicultural, diverse environment that is nurturing and supporting of others. Uh, now, there may be some cynics out there in our audience who are like, <laughs> how in the world are you so positive? I mean, that, that lift as you rise mentality. I mean, how do you do it? There, there's got to be some secret behind this. I mean, how do you remain mm-hmm. so positive when there's so much tragedy in the world around us? Well, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, um, there are some dark times. There are times when you feel all alone. Um, I have lots of uh, great friends like you and others professionally, and they are from the majority as well as from the minority who um, 
share um, their experiences. And one of the things we've done in our department, we've doubled the number of underrepresented minorities in the Department of Surgery while still distinguishing ourselves as a, a highly regarded surgical environment. I think one of the I think one of the really valuable assets that we have is that we share common experiences and we look out for each other. So we have a monthly call and we basically just discuss what the issues are and how we can solve problems. So I think that can-do attitude then reinforces the positive nature of the challenges we face and gives people reassurances that they, they belong in this environment they belong in this specialty, they belong in this field, and that they are having an extraordinary impact. There aren't many people who can say they save lives every day. Just by being present, we then open the door for other underrepresented minorities who can save lives every day. And so that's a pretty cool thing. And uh, again, not to over, it, there are days when it's not that easy, uh, but having a network of supportive faculty and staff, both from the majority and the minority, and they create a critical mass. Uh, we're having a huge impact. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to su successfully recruit more um, outstanding people with that background and that attitude. So you've accomplished a tremendous amount in your life. Uh, how do you do it all? I mean, what is the Bob Higgins secret to organization of his life that, that what, like, do you not sleep? I mean, how in the world do you do this? <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I, again, I would uh, leave it to others to say what I've been, you know, successful. I, I think we've had impact. And um, I do think sleep is a little bit overrated. <laughs> but uh, I'll be the first to tell you that uh, a good nap on a Sunday afternoon yeah, right. is awesome. <laughs> so uh, I think you just surround yourself with good people and we've been able to recruit some extraordinary folks and, um, and uh, they, they boost us all up and we look out for each other. And I think that's a positive message. Surround yourself with great people, uh, whether it be in your, your home or your, your division or your department or your institution or your association like the STS great people, and we've been fortunate to surround ourselves with great people who contribute to our success and allow us to do good work. And uh, it's, the, I guess, the power that we uh, generate uh, through collective activity. Uh, Dr. Higgins, in, in the final moments that we have together, um, any parting words of wisdom for our audience members who are listening today? Well, I would just say that uh, you know, in the final analysis, uh, this is the call to action for our membership, both from the majority and from the minority, to positively affect change in healthcare across the country. And I think we can do that. It will allow us to create a better future. We certainly will avoid the, the, the challenges of the past. We're not gonna eliminate them, but hopefully um, with that mantra, um, we can recruit the best and the brightest people into our specialty and into healthcare, and they can save lives on a daily basis. And uh, that'll be a battle uh, that we will have won in the future if we can make that happen. So I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit of this with, uh, with you and with others. And maybe uh, it won't just all be pie in the sky. Maybe it'll be reality. 
and uh, it'll inspire one or two folks to, to follow in a path of yours and mine and do great things. So thanks for the opportunity to share. Well, Dr. Higgins, it's, uh, it's been an incredible honor to speak with you today. And I'm hoping that our listeners have gotten a glimpse as to why uh, Dr. Higgins and, of course, his wife, Molly, as well, are, are two of my favorite human beings in the world. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to connect. And uh, we look forward to the work ahead. Great. Let's keep doing good work. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Bob. This has been Same Surgeon, Different Life a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag, the face of CT surgery. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.